Prayer is hard. And when I talk to you guys about prayer, this is a big theme that comes up. Because of so many things that are going on in our hearts and so many realities in the world from kids that come in and interrupt you or phone calls that you receive in the middle of it to our own tendency to be distracted and uh, the fact that we sometimes we don't really want to pray. So many problems, right, that get in the way of prayer. And maybe the most common one I hear from people and have even heard from some of you is, I really want to pray, but I don't know what to say. I have heard that from all ages, from probably five years old up to pushing 80 years old and been a Christian for 60 or 70 years. All sorts of people have said this to me. Some in reference to praying out loud in front of people, right? Like, you know, I've gotten to where I can talk to the Lord alone, but when I get in front of people, oh goodness, I lose all my words. I don't know what to say. Some of us go to the Lord in private, and we would love to have sweet communion and fellowship with God in prayer. But we get there, and, and just kind of tongue-tied. It, it feels like, uh, you know, the first time somebody puts a baby in your arms, and you're like, what am I supposed to do with this thing, right? I, uh, you know, you go before God to pray, and you're, what, I, God is listening to me. What, what am I supposed to do? This is tough. And in that weakness that so many of us have, difficulty finding words when we go before God in prayer, uh, I believe the Lord wants to meet us this morning and, and help us. Uh, because prayer is not something that the greatest of super spiritual people do perfectly. Prayer is itself an act of weakness. It is to go before him and admit that we are weak and we are needy. And a God that would welcome us in prayer is the same God that would look to the Apostle Paul and say, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. The same God that would look to little David shorter than all of his brothers, and say, you are the one I have chosen to be king, because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Prayer is something that we can go to God in our difficulty doing it right, and not worry about him finding fault because we can't find words. Now, that is not how our Lord handles the weakness of his people. Instead, he reaches out his hand. He says, I will hear your prayers, and I will help you in your weakness to pray. This is what I believe the Lord desires to do this morning through the prayer that we are going to read. It gives us a lot of help praying well. It sets a good example. I think it particularly helps those of us who struggle to find words and form them into coherent sentences when we pray. So if that is you all the time or if that is you some of the time, I think the Lord could use this word especially in your life this morning. Before we get there, there may be some of you who do not this morning have your faith in Jesus Christ, and you are wondering perhaps why a people would be so bold as to gather and try to get better at talking to God, for how could we deserve to go before God and talk in the first place, right? If you look around and you see the way people act, right? None of us deserve to be able to go before God and have requests. How bold and audacious is that? But the good news that I want to give you is that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. And all of the wickedness that you see in the world, all of the wickedness that perhaps you see in your own heart, well, Jesus has offered payment for those of us who are willing to trust him for our sins, 
so that we can go before God and not fear that we're going to be judged, but actually come to him as children who have requests. How can we do that? Because we have been reconciled to God. Anyone who is willing to trust Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins can go before God in prayer as a child, as a favored child, the way that children in the world can go to their parents and the kid, the parents kind of have their heartstrings tugged and want to give the kids what they want, even if it's not the right thing. We can go to God like that because Jesus died and rose on our behalf to offer payments for our sins. So before we even get into it, I want to call you, place your faith in this Jesus and find this relationship with God that is reconciled where you are his child and where you can go before him with requests. Now, if you have already done that or if you've done that right now and chosen, okay, I will trust Jesus for forgiveness, let's talk about how we can pray better. There's a story here of a king named Hezekiah. He is one of Israel's kings, and he's kind of a mixed character. He does some reform, leads Israel away from some of the wickedness that they were walking in back to faithfulness, but he does some bad things too. He's he's kind of a mixed character in that way. Well, we find him here on, you might say, a hot streak, like he's been doing good several things in a row, and he's going to continue doing some good things, and then he'll get bad again later. Uh, The example he gives us here is a good one for how to respond to crisis situations in prayer. What happens is he's king at a really perilous time in history. Some kings get to be king over a really peaceful empire and enjoy it. Some of them are kings during constant threat and they're always stressed. And Hezekiah was one of those that was under a lot of stress. In his day, the Assyrian empire had risen and was rising still to power. And they were one of the great empires of the past particularly cruel to the people that they conquered. And so everyone around lived in fear of them. And Hezekiah watched them conquer one nation and destroy them, treat them terribly and mock their gods, and then conquer the next nation and do the same and conquer a third nation and conquer a fourth nation. He knew the whole time they're going to come for us. We have some good land and they're going to come for us. And Lo and behold, King Sennacherib of Assyria comes right to Hezekiah's doorstep, right outside the city of Jerusalem, ready to lay it to siege, and begins mocking and taunting them, saying, we're going to put you under siege, we're going to take over you, uh, and it's not going to be pretty. And so uh, Hezekiah goes to the prophet Isaiah, says, will you pray for us? And Isaiah says, yes. Then King Sennacherib comes and delivers a letter to King Hezekiah. And the message of the letter is, do not think that your God will save you. Do not let your God deceive you by telling you that he is going to save you. For here is a nation whose God promised to save them, and I conquered them and destroyed their gods. And when I was done with them, I went to this other nation, and their God did not rescue them either. And then I went to still a third and a fourth nation, and their gods did not rescue them either. Do not be foolish and think that your God will rescue you any better than these gods have rescued these nations. Hezekiah reads the letter, and our text this morning is his response. Let's look at Isaiah 37. We will start at verse 14, and we'll end on verse 20. Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messengers. And read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, 
enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, and open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is an example to help us pray. There are many faithful prayers in the Old Testament, and they all teach us something about what faithful prayer looks like. None of us teach, them, teach us everything about what faithful prayer looks like, but they all teach us something. And this is one of those prayers that teaches us something about how to pray, especially in difficult situations, especially when you don't know what to say. Now, sometimes Old Testament stories are very complicated to interpret. This person winds up being a type of Jesus, and this is a symbol of that. And sometimes there's all sorts of complicated, wonderful beauty in Old Testament texts. And other times, it's as simple as be like the good guys, don't be like the bad guys, right? Sometimes it's just do the right thing, and here's an example of the right thing. And that's what we have here. Hezekiah's response is exactly how we ought to respond to a situation like this. His prayer teaches us much about how to pray. And so as the book of 1 Corinthians says that these things happened as an example for us, we lay Hezekiah's example for us this morning. We say this is what faithful prayer looks like. And so what can we learn about faithful prayer? What can those of us who struggle to know what to say before God learn that can help us to offer more coherent prayers, better prayers, more faithful prayers before God? Well, I want to give you a a few things that we can see here. First, This first one's a little bit of a long sentence, so if you're writing down, I'll say it slow and I'll say it twice. Let the scriptures fill your heart with God's glory so that your heart will burst during your prayers. Let the scriptures fill your heart with God's glory so that it will burst out during your prayers. I'm going to work through that backwards because that kind of prayer is what we see here with Hezekiah. There's there's really one truth that is founding everything Hezekiah is saying and praying here. He says it in at least four different ways, and it is the truth that the Lord alone is God. He's the only God. There is no other beside him. Hezekiah is clearly very passionate about that truth, and I'm going to show you a few ways that that comes out in a way that it's almost like his heart is just exploding all over the sanctuary, and his love for the glory of God is just all over the place in the sanctuary now as, as he just bursts with a love for God's holiness and his name. First, you see in verse 16 that it's one of the many things he is enamored with. His prayer says, about halfway through verse 16, You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms on the earth, right? You alone are God. You can see that truth there. That's something Hezekiah will show now that he is very passionate about. 
In verse 17, you can see that it's kind of a, the rock in his shoe that every, every time he takes a step, he feels that rock and it is irritating him. In verse 17, he, he's asking the Lord to listen to the words of this king that has mocked him. And his logic here is this king has mocked you and you alone are God. So he's, it's frustrating him. He's upset about it because he is passionate about the Lord's name. In verses 18 and 19, the truth that the Lord alone is God is how he interprets what is going on, right? The nations around them have fallen. And he says, yeah, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and they have cast their gods in the fire. Why? Because they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, right? So because the Lord alone is God and those other nations' gods were, as Hezekiah says, no gods, right? That, that's why what happened happened. So truth that the Lord alone is God is, is even the grid he's interpreting what he sees through. Yeah, they were all destroyed because they aren't gods. You alone are God. And finally, in verse 20, we see that the truth that the Lord alone is God is the motive for his request. He asks, save us from his hand, and he has a reason, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So the reason he wants to be rescued He wants the nations around to see there is only one God, and it is Yahweh God, the God of Israel. So the Lord alone being God is the the fuel for his prayer. It is what makes the mocking words of the other king so irritating to him. And it is the motive for his request. Hezekiah is fixated on the fact that only the Lord is is God. His heart is clearly full of this truth, and it is bursting out in this prayer. And just that simple change, right? A, a, a prayer that is focused on God's greatness and his greatness being revealed in the answering of our prayers can really bring life to our prayer, right? Hezekiah is not just saying, save us, the end, right? He's saying, save us so that all of these nations will know that you are God. You see the difference? That the glory of God being known, being the motive for your prayer request. This is the difference between, Lord, will you heal my aunt, which is a good prayer to offer, versus, Lord, will you heal my aunt and do it so miraculously that every atheist doctor in that hospital wing has no choice but to admit that you are real and you work miracles. Would you glorify your name by healing my aunt? Right? Now, there is a prayer that wants the same thing, but wants it for the glory of God. That's a model that Hezekiah gives us. And he does that because his heart is full of God's glory. He loves God's glory. He's passionate about it. And so what we want here is to pray with as much passion for God's glory as Hezekiah does. To pray with as much of a longing that his glory would be recognized throughout the world as Hezekiah does. To to have that truth over and over again peppered through our prayers. And so the question we got to ask is, well, how do I pray like that? It's one thing to say I want to. How do I get there? How do I do it? And to answer that, we've got to look elsewhere in the Bible. Jesus says, out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Hezekiah's words are are bursting with God's glory. Why is he doing that? Because his heart is full of God's glory. In this way, 
your heart is kind of like a balloon. You can fill a balloon up with any number of substances, right? Air, helium, water, shaving cream, right? Anything, right? If you fill it up all the way and you apply pressure, whatever you have put in the balloon is going to come out of the balloon and go all over the place, right? Your heart works the same way. When pressure is applied, whatever you have been filling your heart with will come out. If what comes out is a passion for the glory of God, well, you got there by filling your heart with pictures of God's glory, by encouraging yourself to become more and more passionate about God's glory. A heart that is full of a passion for God's glory will burst forth in prayer with a passion for God's glory. Whatever you put in is going to come out. And so we can learn from Jesus' words that out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, What Hezekiah is doing here, this way that he is bursting with a passion for God's glory, it, it has to be there because he has filled his heart with a passion for the glory of God. Right? He's praying with a passion for the glory of God because he has a passion for the glory of God deep within his heart. And so what do you do then? You fill your heart with God's glory. Otherwise, your attempts to pray with this kind of passion for God's glory will at best be hypocrisy and probably won't last as long as you want them to. Now, how do you get there? You fill your heart with a passion for God's glory. Now, how do you do that? Well, I think we would do it the same way that Hezekiah did it. And we have enough in the scriptures to get a really strong implication of how Hezekiah became like this. How did he become so passionate for God's glory in this phase of his life? To to find that, we're going to have to turn back to the book of Deuteronomy. So keep a bookmark or something where your Bible is. And would you turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 17? While you're turning there, I'll just tell you, a lot of you are reading through the Bible right now in our Bible reading plan, and there are lots of stories about kings in in the Bible. Uh, As you read those stories about kings, I want you to know what we're about to look at gives you a good interpretive grid for understanding those stories. We are about to read the laws that were given to the king. When you rise to the throne, this is what you need to do. And many of those stories outline that they either did this stuff to the T or they did not do this stuff. So when you're confused about a story about Israel or Judah's king, look back here to Deuteronomy 17 and see if you can find any clues as to what was faithful or unfaithful about what they did. Now, Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse 14, gives us laws concerning Israel's kings. And we are going to skip down to verse 18 to see the very first thing he should do when he becomes king. This is the rule that Hezekiah even was under. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this laws and the statutes and doing them. So when he becomes king... First thing he must do 
is write for himself a copy of this book, Deuteronomy, the covenant retold to God's people. You sit on your throne and you start writing, right, God's covenant with his people. Second thing he is to do is to give that to the Levitical priests and let them approve it and say, yep, he, yep, he got all the words right. Yes, kind of like, you know, the grader on your paper that says, yeah, your margins are good. Here you go. You can have it back, right? They give it back to him. Now it's his. And he is to read of it every day for the rest of his life. Read this covenant document that God had given them. And the reason, it says, is that if he reads it every day, he will learn to fear the Lord his God. He will develop in his heart a great reverence for the Lord God, a great passion for God's glory, a great love for God. He will get this by reading that book every day. So that's the law that Hezekiah is under, right? He, sends, he ascends up to the throne. What he's supposed to do, we don't have documents as to whether he did it or not, but what he was supposed to do is write that book down and begin reading it every day. Okay, what would he have learned if he had done that? Well, for that, let's, let's look at one big theme in Deuteronomy. And I wonder if you'll notice the connection before I say what it is. Flip back with me, would have 435, Deuteronomy 435. All right, he is talking, the Lord is talking about the great things Israel has seen. Why did they get to see this and other nations not? He says, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. This is Deuteronomy teaching us that there is no God besides the Lord. The Lord alone is God. We flip the page then to, I've lost my, to chapter five, verse six, to the Ten Commandments which start as, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This book is teaching the Lord alone is God. Because the Lord alone is God, have no other gods before me. And then finally, toward the end in chapter 32, verse 38, I'll just show you one more here. I'm looking at it, and this is not the verse that I prepared in my study, so I must have put a typo in the outline. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> but there is a verse somewhere around there that says the very same thing, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. So when we have the book teaching, the Lord is God, the Lord alone, have no other gods but the Lord before you, the Lord, he alone is God. And Hezekiah is commanded to read of this book every day. And in the most high-pressure situation in his life, he goes before God and he says, you alone are God. The words of this king irritate me so much because you alone are God. Would you answer our prayer to show the nations that you alone are God? Where did Hezekiah learn that the Lord alone is God? He must have read every day the book that he was commanded to read so that he would know that the Lord alone is God. 
So we have their strong implication of how Hezekiah learned that the Lord alone is God, the fuel behind his prayer. How did he get it? Well, the word of God told him to get it by reading the words of God every single day. And here you have one of the greatest ways you can fill your heart with a passion for God's glory so that your prayers can sound like Hezekiah's prayers sound. How do you fill your heart with a passion for God's glory like that? Reading his words every day. Stopping and meditating every time you see the Lord do something amazing and just just drink it in and say, he did that. He parted those waters. He won that battle. His son rose up from the grave day after day, coming back to the book, given every day a passion for God's glory. This is why we make so much out of daily Bible reading as a church together. This is why we're, we're set on reading it together through as a church this year. Because in that daily practice, you don't just learn things and you don't just become a better reader of the Bible. The Lord actually changes your heart and gives you a passion for his glory. He teaches you that he alone is God, worthy to be feared and trembled before. He alone is the merciful and righteous one, worthy of our trust. You grow in that reverence for him as you read his word. You also grow in that reverence of him. You fill your heart with God's glory so that it bursts forth in your prayers by committing his word to memory. We have examples of many saints in the scriptures who were able to just quote the Bible offhand, right? Jesus is taken up to the top of the temple, has no access to the documents down below, and Satan begins to tempt him, and he see quotes scripture, and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? From memory, right? A good indicator that our Lord has spent much of his life memorizing the words of his Father. If you want your heart full of God's glory, I can, I can give you my testimony. Few things in life have done it for me, like memorizing a chapter or so at a time in the scriptures. It takes a month or two sometimes to get a whole chapter down. But man, if you pack that stuff deep in your heart and get to where you can recite a whole chapter at once, there is just something the Lord does to change you. There's just something the Lord does to make your heart come alive to his word if you hide the words of God in your heart. So for those of you then, to make this practical, those of you that are struggling with words to say in prayer, if you want words, fill your heart with words so that when you go to the Lord in prayer, you have words to give to him. Not only will you have sentences to give to him, but you'll have a heart that is alive and beating with a passion for his glory that cannot wait to tell the Lord how great he is. These are the sorts of things the Lord does through us when we hide his word in our heart. Let me tell you about a man that I sit with sometimes. Uh, sometimes I sit down w- with, with an old man uh, who is, you know, at a place in life that, that some of us will eventually get to where he has trouble stringing together words and sentences and into coherent thoughts. You know, you talk to him and you're not sure if you're getting through to him and if he's getting through to you, but you're at least going back and forth. Some of you have had conversations with people that are in this kind of, of situation. And that's where he is. And often I can't tell really what he's trying to say, and I'm pretty sure he can't tell what I'm trying to say. And uh, we just sit and we talk, and it's still fun. Uh, and then we'll pray. And I got to tell you, it, he starts praying, and it's like a switch flips. All of a sudden, the sentences, boom, perfectly coherent. All of a sudden, the thoughts go clearly from one progression to the next. And the most amazing thing is that 40, 50% of the prayer is scripture, direct quotations of scripture. Uh, Here's a man who has trouble accessing his own thoughts, has trouble getting them out with his lips. 
But his heart is so full of the word of God that when he goes to pray, he doesn't have any trouble stringing together scripture and offering it back to God. Now, I say that to you because some of you feel like when you go before God, you have trouble finding something to say. If a man who has trouble finding something to say in any situation can go before God and his heart's so full of the Bible that it just comes out to the Lord, I hope you're encouraged to know that if you fill your heart with the scriptures, you will have sentences to give to the Lord. Even when your mind becomes weak and your eyes become dim, you'll have something to offer to the Lord. So Christian, if you, if you want to improve in your prayer life, fill your heart with the word of God and see if he doesn't give you the ability to offer even better words and sentences to him. So that's our first point. Let the scriptures fill your heart with God's glory so that it bursts forth with God's glory in your prayers. The second point today is kind of a a counter to that, because sometimes when we talk about the glory of God so much and just how all-satisfying it is, and it's really kind of the solution to every problem really in the Bible, uh, it can sound sometimes like we should be so passionate about God's glory that we just forget about all of our troubles, right? And, And it's like you go to prayer and like, oh, I even forgot what the problem was, God. You're just so glorious. You have overcome my imagination. And we can get to a place where we can even feel guilty because we're sad about the problems in our lives, right? Like if I was really satisfied with God's glory, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be sad about this, right? And this wouldn't be bothering me. If I just had more faith in God's promises, this wouldn't bother me so much and I, and I wouldn't be so sad right now. We, we can guilt ourselves into thoughts like this. And I want you to see that in Hezekiah's prayer, there is just none of that. He is irritated to no end with the problem that is going on. He doesn't try to detach from his problems and not care about them. No, he knows that he has someone to bring his problems to. And this is what makes Christianity so profound. It does not detach you from your troubles. It gives you someone to bring your troubles to. And in doing that, it gives you permission to look at your troubles right in the eye and say, yes, there they are. They are real and they are making me sad. All right, this gives... uh, a woman who is, is deep into adulthood and always wanted the Lord to give her a husband, but the Lord never gave her a husband. This gives her permission to say, Lord, I'm sad about that. Lord, this is how that makes me feel. Lord, I am lonely, right? Now, if she doesn't feel that way, she shouldn't have to say that, but it gives her permission to say that without any risk of, well, if you just trusted God and were satisfied in him, you wouldn't feel so sad about this. Right? No. Now, she can bring it right to the Lord and say, Lord, this is how this makes me feel. Because now you have someone to bring your sorrows to. Before I give you more examples, let me show you this in Hezekiah's prayer. In verse 14 and 17, and then in verse 20, we see it most. In verse 14, Hezekiah is bold enough to take the actual letter and spread it before the Lord. I wonder if you've ever gotten a text message that really bothered you, or a letter in the mail that really bothered you. Have you ever been bold enough to take your phone and open it to the text message and be like, have you seen this? 
right? Would you just look at what this person said, right? This is not a man detached from his troubles at all, is it? No, he's laying them right before the Lord. And then in verse 17, you can hear the passion in his voice. Incline your ear, Lord, hear. Have you opened your eyes, Lord, and see? Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. This is a man who is upset about what is going on. And then in verse 20, he offers a very real and clear request. Would you save us, O Lord? So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, right? So he's clear about his problems. He's clear about his request. And and that's really the second point today. Be specific and real about your problems and your requests. Be specific and real about your problems and your request. A lot of what's gone on here, especially in the States, is, is we've kind of assumed this like American spirituality where, you know, you can have troubles, but, but the idea is to kind of have inner peace even though you have troubles. This is the influence of Buddhism and, and Hinduism on our culture. And so when you've got problems and troubles, you, you fire up your mindfulness app in your phone so that you can get back to finding that place of balance and inner peace, or you you go to your yoga instructor and assume a pose and breathe in the positivity and breathe out the negativity, right, so you can be back with your inner balance and core, because the goal of a lot of these things, the goal of a lot of American spirituality is to be at peace with what is going on, right? Inner peace. Buddhists would call it nirvana. I think there's a word for it in the Hindu religion. I don't know what it is. This is a goal of having problems, but living like you don't have problems, right? And how much of American life is about that, right? Putting on a good face and living like you don't have problems. And a spirituality that tries to put in a good heart that's, you know, pure from this icky world of all these problems around you, but just, you know, lives and breathes happy. This is very appealing to people who have no one to bring their troubles to, a religion that offers them the opportunity to at least pretend like your problems don't exist. But I want to tell you, Christianity offers you something better. It doesn't offer you detachment from your problems. It very rarely offers you immediate solutions to your problems. What it gives you is someone to bring your problems to. And that is what Hezekiah demonstrates here. He takes the letter and says, you read it, right? Yeah, right? He brings his problems to the Lord. If you want to grow in your prayer life, this is the discipline that you've got to develop as well. Look your problems in the eye, know exactly what it is that you want the Lord to do, and bring it to him. You don't have to try to detach from the troubles. You don't have to try to find inner peace in the troubles. You don't have to pretend like they aren't as bad as they are. Bring them to him, tell him how bad they are, and ask him what you would like. Before we move on, let me just boil this down to four really practical questions. This is especially for those of you that struggle to find words, all right? Let's take these two points. I'll put them into four questions you can ask about anything, and from them, really quickly, get some sentences to bring to the Lord, okay? Number one, what's going on? All right, what's the situation? What's happening? Be real about it. Number two, how do you feel about it? All right, Hezekiah's got feelings. He tells the Lord, how do you feel about it? Number three, what are you asking for? And number four, how could that glorify God? I'll repeat all those quickly. What's going on? 
How do you feel about it? What are you asking for? How could that glorify God? Whatever's going on, if you can just ask these four questions, you can bring yourself perhaps to a point where you can offer a prayer like Hezekiah offered there. Uh, let's say that you have a, a job interview coming up. Okay, what's going on? I have a job interview coming up. All right, got that one. Okay, how do you feel about it? I'm excited. I'm kind of nervous. I'm not really sure if I'm up for it. Okay, uh, what are you asking for? Okay, I'm asking that the interview will go well and I'll get the job. And how could that glorify the Lord? Well, if I could provide better for my family, maybe I could make friends at this job and bring many people to Jesus Christ through this job. Okay, now... You've got enough material that you can offer a prayer like this. Lord, I have an interview coming up. I am nervous about it. I'm not sure I'm up for it. In my own strength, I can't do this. Would you be with me and help it to go well? And would you do that in a way that overcomes my weakness and brings great glory to your name? There's a prayer that's a whole lot like Hezekiah's. In a real world situation, you can just use those four things and bring a faithful prayer before the Lord. Those of you particularly struggling with that, those four questions can help you. Okay, our last point today speaks to a different concern that some people have with prayer. So this this is not particularly for those of you struggling to find words. Uh, Some of us, in in our foolishness, we want to pit the truth that prayer really does change things against the truth that God holds all things in his hand and has prepared all things from before the foundation of the world. Our minds have a hard time grasping, grasping both of these truths, right? If God, has, if God already planned everything from the beginning of the world, why does my prayer matter, right? And so we tend to want to grab one of those truths and let go of the other one. And, and so I hear people say things like, well, God's got a plan. He's got it all worked out. Why does he need me to pray and ask him first? He already knows what he's going to do, right? So what's the difference that my prayer makes? Or I hear other people saying, uh, well, I don't believe that God is in control of all things and that he has prepared all things from before the foundation of the world because if I did, it would discourage me from praying, right? So, so we want to deny one or the other. I want to show you in the way the story ends that Isaiah is very clear that both of these are true, and so we cannot let one contradict the other. Uh, Let's go on in the story. What will happen is the Lord will give a word to Isaiah, and and Isaiah will bring that answer to this prayer to Hezekiah. And he's going to say this in verse 21. We're back in Isaiah 37 now. Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, and he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, here are the key words, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Okay, so what I'm about to tell you that I'm going to do, I'm going to do it because you prayed to me. This is a direct answer to Hezekiah's prayer. So we have there enough to show us that this prayer Hezekiah offered changed the course of history and the rise and fall of nations. If you have ever wondered if our prayers make a difference, here is one prayer that toppled an empire. And your prayers just might do the same thing. So prayer matters, right? It makes a difference. It can change the course of history. And let's move down to verse 25. It's verse 26, I apologize. Have you not heard... That I determined it long ago. 
I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities and crash into heaps of ruins. So what will happen to the king of Assyria is his army encamped outside of Jerusalem will be visited by the angel of the Lord, and in one night, 185,000 of them will die in their sleep. The king will wake up the next morning, discover this, and flee back to his home city. While he's there, he will be worshiping before his God, and his two sons will murder him behind his back, and that will be the end of his reign. And the Lord says here, have you not heard that I determined that long ago from before the foundation of the world? So the toppling of this king was determined long ago, right? And yet, it was decided when Hezekiah prayed and the Lord said, I will answer this prayer, right? Now, the logical arguer in us wants to say, okay, well, which is it, right? Lord, when did you decide that you were going to do this? Was it before the foundation of the world? Or was it because Hezekiah prayed and asked you to do it? Which one is it? And Isaiah has no problem saying it's both within a few verses of each other. Somehow, we have here clear truth that prayer changes things and a clear teaching of predestination at the same time. And the two do not cancel each other out. So to the one who says, I do not want to believe that the Lord planned all things from before the foundation of the world because that would discourage me from praying, well, we have to look and say, well, both are true. And to the one who says, I don't understand why I should pray if God already determined everything that he's going to do, we have to look here and say that both are true. The way to become more faithful in praying is never to deny biblical teaching. That is never going to make you better at prayer. No, the way to become more faithful at praying is to receive everything that the Bible says and fire it right back to him in prayer. And so if we want to be faithful in our prayers, we got to receive both of these truths. Somehow we can hold both in the same hand that God prepared everything from the beginning of time and our prayers offered in this hour really do make a difference in history. Logically, I don't know how that works. And I imagine you don't know how that works either. But in faith, we take both as true and we watch that fuel the prayers that we offer to the Lord our God. So there's our last point this morning. Uh, The way to strengthen your prayers is never to deny biblical teaching, but always to receive biblical teaching. Let me close this morning just by applying this to us here as a church. So we should back up and just look at the big picture here. Hezekiah is in the most high-pressure situation he's ever been in, probably ever will be in, and his response is prayer before God. And that's what makes the difference, right? That's the big moral of the story. Respond in prayer in situations like that. That's what makes the difference. Now, we are a church that has been through a lot, right? And, and, and we were really struggling. I think it was four or five years ago and the Lord sort of bringing us back. Two years ago, we got to witness together the Lord answering mighty prayers and bringing new life to our church. We had great hope. And then along comes COVID and just disrupts everything. And now we're trying to figure out, okay, who are we? What are we doing? Lord, are, do you intend to bless us? And if you did, why did you send this disease that's disrupted everything? We're trying to figure this out together and plead with the Lord to bring new life to our church. My challenge is, Are we going to respond to the threats around us and even the threats to our church life the way that Hezekiah did? What made the difference 
was that he went to the Lord and he prayed. And I have read a lot of stories about churches like ours that have turned around and found new life. And there are many different characteristics in all of them, but one theme keeps popping up, and it's that they got together and they prayed that the Lord would bless them. A movement of prayer almost always precedes a movement of God reviving a church and bringing new life to it. This is why we started a new prayer meeting on Sunday nights right before COVID. The Lord was working very powerfully through it. And soon we hope to start it again. We hope to gather together every Sunday night and just ask the Lord to meet our needs. That's why there's a, another prayer meeting throughout the week that's uh, it soon will be in my office. We'll be moving it over there. We just get together and plead with the Lord to bless our church family. If our church can respond like that in prayer, well, I believe that like Hezekiah's prayer, our prayers make a difference. The Lord may be pleased to bring new life here and to begin it through the faithful prayers that some of you have been offering for a while. And some of you could join us on Sunday evenings when we start to gather again to pray together. So that's the challenge. Will we be a praying people the way that Hezekiah was a praying man? You can read this chapter and the following and find three different occasions where in a high-pressure situation, he responds in prayer and the Lord blesses him. Will we, as we fear, we don't know what the Lord is going to do to our church, will we respond the same way? Will we gather? Will we pray together? If we will, I believe the Lord would desire to bless our church. So let's go to him now. Let's ask for that.